talk lines open now at 247-2000. Hello, 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 and welcome to the First City Forum brought to our Providence Properties in Southeast Alaska Orthopedics. I'm your host, the one and only Joe Williams, and in, on, on, in, in the studio with me today, I have my friends from the University of Alaska Southeast. I have Michelle and I have Dr. Charmaine. How's it going? <laughs> Good. It's going great. Good morning, Thank you. Jim. Good morning. I'm really excited to have you guys in here today. I'm always excited to have the University of Alaska Southeast and because there's always something interesting and fun going on. I'll, I'll uh, take you to Michelle first for updates and then we'll talk to uh, Dr. Charmaine about hummingbirds and diver dexterity and all kinds of fun things. Awesome. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, uh, we well, we do try to do interesting things up at, uh, <laughs> up at the upper campus and here over at the Maritime Training Center. We, we try our best. Um, uh, yeah, so it's kind of a, an in-between season in terms of updates for the campus. The big thing that I want to focus on is there are some maritime training classes. Since we have uh, classes that start at the Maritime Training Center throughout the semester, they're not all uh, all semester long. So before we'll be back on your show in February, well, we've got some classes starting, namely the uh, Master 100 Ton. So if you want to get yourself geared up for possibly owning your own charter boat, running your own charter business. Uh, that's a class for you to take. It runs from January 24th through February 5th. Um, uh, early mid-February, we've got basic training revalidation. We've got radar renewal. We've got radar observer. We also have, uh, for our diesel tech program, we've got junior engineering prep coming up at the end of this month on the 24th. And uh, basic welding just started last week but i'm not sure if there's still slots available i think it was full but if that's something that you're wanting to take there's basic intermediate and advanced you might be able to get on a waiting list um so that's something to keep an eye on i want to emphasize too we get a tremendous amount of external funding for educational um fees uh tuition uh, especially for the maritime training center and uh, dr robinson will talk about some of the other scholarships that we get for other other academic uh, classes up on the up on the academic campus, uh, but so if there's something that you are interested in taking at the Maritime Training Center, and you're you know worried about funds, we cannot overemphasize enough that you should just give us a call mm -hmm. and talk about when funding is available because there are step grants that are available that will pay for. A tr I'm not going to say that it'll pay for all of it because. I just don't want to say stuff like that, but... But uh, it could. It, you, <laughs> you said that, not me. <laughs> uh, but you should really call Tessa or Brenda and talk yeah. to them. And um, I'll give the number now, but I'll give it at the end of the show, too. But it's 228-4511. Uh, so don't let money be in your way, right? Um, always let Tessa and Brenda be your guide, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the way. And that's something I really love about you guys is that the, these careers can be very lucrative yes. and you guys really do a great job at providing funding just to make sure that no one's missing out on any opportunities. These are big, uh, big opportunities that can be used here and really all around the world. Right. Well, it's like the QMED um, uh, Maritime Multi-Skilled Worker Program, right? People think it's just maritime, but the truth is, is that the skills that you get in these programs... Uh, you can apply them for oil rigs in the mainland. You can do any any number of things. So just mm -hmm. because you're learning it at Maritime Tech Center doesn't mean that that isn't literally the skill that you're going to get to get, you know, a forty, a fifty, a sixty, a seventy thousand dollar job, you know, inland if that's what you need to do. But of course, our goal 
is to be educating Alaskans um, and bringing work here and increasing wages here for our people. So Definitely, definitely. So don't let money stand in your way, <laughs> says Michelle. Yeah, it's um, sitting on the table. Grab it. <laughs> yeah, so the library's open 9 to 5. I just want to say that we started off our Alaska library catalog uh, at the end of the fall last year. That's going well. So if you want to come up, get a free library card with us. That gives you access to over 3 million titles. We already wow. have public patrons who've been doing that. That means you come in. You place a hold on a book up in Anchorage, and it gets sent here for free to you to check out, to read, to enjoy. We send it back for free. So uh, take advantage of that. Come see us. We've got nice couches. We brew coffee fresh every day. We've got computers to use. snacks. Ooh. There's always <laughs> snacks. <laughs> so I was going to ask, so this is open to the public. You don't have to be a student in order to enjoy this library. That's right. You just It's like a five-minute sign-up. It's the same as the first city library, so we need your need your Alaska ID, and then we just need proof of your local mailing address, essentially. Fabulous. Um, and then just a, a quick run-up for dates. So uh, fees are due if you're in class and you haven't paid them yet. Fees are due by the 21st, which is the end of the week. Um, also, if you're going to uh, change a class from uh, credit to audit, same deadline. Uh, or if you're going to withdraw from a class, you need 100% uh, refund. Friday's the deadline. So don't miss those deadlines. Um, and then before I see you again, Joe, uh, if you're going to be graduating in the spring, this is just a reminder, please make sure that you get your application to graduate in by the 1st of February. There we go. Straight yeah. from the mouth of Michelle. Now, I said uh, Dr. Charmaine, but it's actually Dr. Robinson, Dr. Charmaine <laughs> Robinson. Uh, how are you today? How was your new year? I'm good, Joe. Yeah, um, I actually like the Dr. Charmaine better. I, I think you I think coined that term last it. semester. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah, I'm feeling it. I like it, <laughs> Dr. Charmaine. Yeah. So Dr. Charmaine Robinson is in the studio today, and she's going to talk about a few different things. Uh, one of my favorite being hummingbirds, and then also uh, diver dexterity. So let's get right into it. <laughs> yeah, very unrelated. A hummingbird, <laughs> and a scuba diver. It's all um, science. Well, you know what? Hummingbirds are pretty dexterous. They they, they move around That's and do true. different things. They're so. the only bird that can fly backwards so oh. they're very maneuverable which yeah. i find insanely fa fascinating excuse me i just fought a cough <laughs> yeah they're a really cool bird um i think a lot of people really connect with them um maybe it's because they come up you know we're almost like we're feeding wildlife right we can hang mm. our feeders out and they they come right up to our windows and interact with us and um and we were, i was just talking with michelle and and you earlier before we were on the air about their migration patterns um, they're just a fascinating bird. So we're offering a class this semester and it's kind of a short course. So it's not a huge commitment or anything. It's one credit. It only meets four times. Um, and those dates, let's see, are March. The first day of class is March 16th. So the class starts in March. Um, it meets four times on Wednesdays and it's called a citizen science class because we're hoping to get interest from the community, mm -hmm. from all the listeners, um, to contribute towards science um, and particularly to contribute towards um, counting numbers and species and other information about the local hummingbirds. Um, and this data can be used you know, nationwide. So folks all over the nation are collecting data on hummingbirds and we're hoping to bring Ketchikan into that exciting realm. Yes, you know, I remember my, when my fascination with hummingbirds first started. It was with the movie Pocahontas. 
And I think it was McDonald's or Burger King. They had the uh, Pocahontas toys and they had the little hummingbird. And I love my hummingbird Aww. toy. Aww. And I've always been fascinated with them ever since. So I'm originally from Detroit. We don't have a lot of hummingbirds around. I have since started to see more, though. When I would go back home, I'll occasionally see a hummingbird flying around. But uh, it wasn't until I moved here that I see hummingbirds regularly. Hmm. And so... I don't know. There's something fascinating about let's let's talk a little bit about the hummingbird. I mean, the way they fly, they they fly in the same pattern as insects, like how how their wings move and things, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah, sort of like a figure eighty almost pattern. They can move them in different ways though, and they do they do a lot of acrobatic stuff that humans don't always witness. Um, mm. But researchers have filmed it, so they also do like the male. Um, one of the species, the male does this sort of mating um, dive bomb thing where it, it does a huge like U-shaped loop um, when he sees his lady female and he's like trying to get her interest. <laughs> um, his wings kind of collapse and they almost literally free fall and then catch themselves right at the end and, and fly straight up again. So they're, they're capable of a lot of really neat movement um, mm-hmm. with their wings, for sure. It's interesting, um, too, because that makes like that makes an audio... Um, uh, Auditory, sound. right? Some auditory yeah. sound. Because I, I remember a couple of years ago, I hope it was a couple of years ago. I'm getting old. Maybe it was longer than that. <laughs> uh, the public library had an ornithologist. Is that the right right term? Yeah. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah. yeah. Bird idea. studier. Bird Study studier. Birds. <laughs> up to talk about hummingbirds um, cool. and their, their migration up here. And he was talking about exactly that, the mating, uh, the mating flight. And he was playing sound. And it was this like amazing high pitched high pitch, like drop. Chirp. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And it's they can only make made, that noise because of the dive. Made by right. the wings. R- right, by the body and the feathers, not by their like vocal cord or, or yeah. Uh-huh. So it's made by their movement pattern and the wing the feathers and the wind passing over it. So is their, that is that yeah. why they're doing that? Is that is is that sound what's attracting their mate? Do we do we know? I I mean I think far as I know, researchers were looking into that. I mean, they don't, I, maybe she likes that noise. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, yeah. it's like a, 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 a sweet song. I'm to free, the, to free the, <laughs> Yeah, they're really, I mean, even my mom just sent me a text uh, yesterday. She's really excited. She lives down in California, um, but she has a little nest in her backyard, a hummingbird nest. So I think folks just connect with them. Mm-hmm. And they their eggs, if you've never seen them, they lay like one or two in the nest. That's it. And they look like a tic tac, literally oh, the size of a God, little so tic tac, so <laughs> a tiny little tic tac egg. Um, and they're in there. Um, the incubation period's about um, two weeks, give or take, maybe fourteen to, to twenty one days or so, depending on the temperature. Um, and then they hatch out. When do um, they? When do they lay eggs? Uh, they it depends on a little on the species and the location of part of the world that they're in, right? So. We find hummingbirds all the way from South America up here to Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something like, I think I might have it written. Um, I want to say it's something like 300 and something species are south of Mexico. And we only have 5% of the total species of the world mm. north of that. Wow. So depending on where you're at, their um, incubation times and their breeding times are all a little different. Um, usually, so... There's my mom in California. <laughs> she's in Northern California, and she's got a nest already, and it's January. Um, usually I would expect more in February, March. And up here in Alaska, 
I'm thinking a little later when it warms up. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a little gnarly out there right now for them to yeah. be. <laughs> now, I'm really curious because I've always heard, or maybe it's just in my mind, that hummingbirds can't st- can't sit still for a long period of time. So do they do they sit on their eggs to incubate them, or how, how does that, that work? Good question. They do, yeah. She does, yeah. The female will sit. Um, the male kind of is done with his duty, and he, he takes off, so he's not. Some bird species, they share that um, nest-sitting action, um, but the hum- hummingbirds is just the female. Um, she'll go out to feed a little bit and then come back and sit. Um, so she does lose quite a bit of weight during that mm. time because her energy, she's not feeding as much. Um, they do sit, though. They perch on um, tree branches and things. Um Maybe what you're thinking, too, their metabolism is crazy fast. Um, so they do need to feed quite often um, to kind of maintain all of that quick metabolism. Um, but she will, in anticipation of her laying an egg, she'll put on quite a bit of what are called fat pads uh. to try to, like, same with overwintering, they'll put on fat pads. So they eat they eat quite a bit to kind of help with that. Related to that, Joe had been asking about whether or not they do any sort of cold weather protection in terms of sleeping more or things like oh, that, yeah. especially considering our our cold snap that we've just, yeah. hopefully <laughs> they've survived. Because some birds would, would just migrate to a warmer place, mm-hmm. but hummingbirds right. would, would be too small for that, right? No, they do migrate. Um, okay. They migrate. Um, different species migrate. We don't know a ton about that, so that's where the citizen science mm. can come in is um, – you know, so many folks are looking out their windows and they see more than one scientist can see in one spot. So when we have tons of humans looking and collecting data, then it can be really helpful. Um, what is known about their migration patterns is um, they're pretty incredible. So the ones in South America, they do migrate up into the United States. Um, they can go 500 or more miles. Wow. Um, sometimes they can fly up to 20 or 24 hours at a stretch without stopping. Um, so for such a tiny bird, and then I know that a bird, a hummingbird, was banded in Florida and recaptured with a monitoring banding um, operation up in Alaska. Hmm. So actually further north of us here in Ketchikan. So wow. it went wow. from Florida to Alaska, same bird. That's some travel. Wow. Yeah. It's like about 3,000 yeah. miles. I don't, yeah, something by like yeah. That. super yeah. far. Yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then Michelle's question, they, um, so they don't hibernate the way a, like a bear does. But they do go into, it's called torpor, it's T-O-R-P-O-R, and they can do that for shorter periods, more like hours as opposed to days or weeks. Um, And they do that when it's very cold. They do that, hummingbirds that live in the desert do that when it gets very cold. Um, They do it up here when it gets very cold. And it is, they slow their metabolism down, so their heart rate lowers, breathing lowers, their energy needs lower down for, you know, at least a few hours or overnight. Yeah. Now, is it different, a hummingbird in the desert versus a hummingbird in Alaska, how long they can go into torpor? I don't know. Somebody should fund that research. <laughs> <laughs> and you can help be a part of that with yes. Citizen Science. Uh, so we're starting on March 16th. Yeah. And oh, and I think something that we, we didn't mention is <sighs> this class. This class essentially can be fully funded. The amount of money that we have for it, because it's a, it's a grant program, right? Correct. Yep. Right. Right. Uh, you know, so we want people free in the class. community to join. It's essentially a free class. Yeah. So Michelle, you're like the Oprah of education. <laughs> you, you get, get a class. You, you get, get a money. class. You Everybody get gets a class. <laughs> Everything's funded. I love that. I love that. Um, um, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, hummingbirds, right? Yeah, and it, it seems like too, right? Like this is this is like really important zoologically, right? Yeah. You know, but it also seems like citizen science gathering information on. Um, 
hummingbirds, especially this far north, right, probably has an impact in uh, global studies on, um, like global warming and things like that too. Oh, yeah, I would so love climate change is definitely. If yeah, you, I, I would love to hear yeah. more. I didn't mean. To, I just <laughs> talked over you. I'd love to hear more, but I'm going to talk over you. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Um, I, I would love to hear more about hummingbirds, but I would like to move the conversation on to this um, this other topic of of cold water diver dexterity. Uh, yeah. Doctor Doctor Robinson just got uh, an award uh, with along with uh, a faculty from Sitka. Mm-hmm. Congratulations! Uh, from, from the you. you get a grant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, from uh, from the wider university system to study uh, diver dexterity in cold water southeast Alaska. Um, and I know that like our diving industries are so important here in Ketchikan and I know that there've been, yeah. you know, th- there've been issues. So this is a really important oh, yeah. issue. Can Safety, you talk to us yeah. a little bit about this program and this study and this, however that's, that's playing out? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm not thinking about hummingbirds up above ground, <laughs> I'm underwater. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I've got some background, um, in dive safety, um, administering a dive program, um, So I had worked for Monterey Bay Aquarium um, before coming up here. Uh, And so scuba diving is kind of also part of my um, expertise and background and interests. Uh, So I wrote this little proposal and I'll be working with Joel Marcus. Uh, He's at our Sitka, UAS Sitka campus, and he runs a pretty incredible um, Alaska dive program up there um, where for a whole semester folks come from all over and they go through a ton of training in a short period of time and they come out the other end as scientific divers. Mm. Um, so that's a super neat program. I didn't even um, know this. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Our, our, our sister campus up there in Sitka, definitely Sitka. look them up. Yeah. Um, so I've been interested in, in kind of trying to get a little more things happening here in Ketchikan dive wise. Um, so this is the beginning of that. And um, I'll exciting. be going up to Sitka and working with Joel and his students um, we're kind of going to use them as um, consensual guinea pigs um, for this research. So we're going to see how their hands um, respond and operate to the cold water immersion. Mm. Um, so what happens, and we kind of intuitively know, right, everyone here, even just walking outside right now, you would notice your hands get a little stiffer, harder to move, um, you know, your grip strength, uh, your ability to pinch things, your ability to even... Um, do fine motor skills so can you pick up something small or can you operate equipment which might be pretty important for folks like our commercial gooey duck and um, sea cucumber divers and other people um, in the industry so putting a number on that is kind of what we're trying to do quantify it so actually look at how much percent is lost over what period of time underwater um, now, where, what is this research being used for? Is it being used to create uh, new equipment that can maybe uh, help to warm the divers underwater <laughs> and, and to, just to keep them able to dive for longer, to do, to do more? Uh, what, what is this right. research used for? Yeah, good question. Um, so, some of those types of products do exist. I mean, there's gloves and um, other kinds of things pe- folks have tried over the years, <laughs> try to keep you know, the whole core body too warm. Um, but um, this is kind of an initial pilot study, and the data is actually coming back here to Ketchikan, and I've, I'm teaching an in-person class right now. It's anatomy, physiology, second semester of that. So those students are going to analyze the data. So mm. it's giving them as, as kind of budding scientists and beginning in the medical field, giving them a chance to look at real 
um, physiology data and understand how to do some basic statistics with it, how to find whether there's any significance of it, and then we can kind of go from there in the future um, that maybe will inform equipment choices or um, the type of thermal protection that folks wear that might help with safety. Yeah. I love that. Now, now we mentioned some, uh, but what are some of the main challenges that divers would face in Alaskan waters? Yeah, cold. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, um, hypothermia for sure. Um, cold's a big one, um, especially, you know, here in Southeast, our, the water temperature is really not that um, extreme cold. But when you come out of the water and if the wind is blowing or, gosh, we had those single-digit temperatures <laughs> just a few weeks ago um, and you're wet and you add, you know, wind chill plus, you know, 7, 8 degree air, um, things freeze up. So equipment freezes, um, which can obviously cause it to not function properly. Um, and then your body physiologically, um, it's, you lose your ability to really like move your muscles properly. Um, and you, you know, you can, to a certain extent with hypothermia, you start to lose some mental and cognitive Mm. functions too. Your brain kind of slows down, which is not the safest as well. Um, yeah, so there's definitely challenges, um, you know, mainly cold-related um, and the heavy gear. So because you're cold, divers put on a lot of thermal protection, which means they need even more lead and weight to be able to get down underwater. And carrying all that gear, moving around while cold, it's like you went to the gym and didn't stretch and warm up, right. and now you're trying to lift something heavy, and that's a muscle tears and things like that and diving sounds so interesting whenever i speak to my friends who uh dive is always so fascinating the things that they see i hear that uh uh uh, sea lions are a big problem oh (laughs) someone told me that a sea lion tried to at least bite at his head i don't know if it was trying to eat him or what was going (laughs) on but i guess the sea lion became territorial or something like that and so is that that a big problem like are are there lots of um marine animals that the divers have to worry about down there um you know i don't think not in the sense that like the minute you go down you're being bombarded Mm -hmm. (laughs) by sea lions um they definitely the males especially can kind of be a little bit um aggressive i've had them posture at me um they especially if you have fish if you're um hunting while down there or collecting um sea cucumbers Mm -hmm. gooey ducks and stuff they want an easy meal Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and if you're holding a nice tasty clam in your hand i had never thought about this yeah or if especially if you're holding a fish that's bleeding so the smell can Mm -hmm. travel a little further through the water so you might attract them in that way um that's the interactions i personally had too was them trying to go after fish that i had on the stringer um so which is bad you don't and then the thing is as a diver you don't want to let them take it because they will learn just like any animal learns behavioral they'll learn hey this is easy and free and i can get this so then they'll start doing it even just attacking more. divers yeah so you kind of want to protect your um which most divers up here i think do but they i know in florida they're having a lot of problems with um sharks for same mm. same reasons so sharks oh are getting goodness. the fish that the free divers and scuba divers are having and so people so. free dive in in florida with sharks Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, yeah. I, I, Michelle, I don't know about you. I couldn't no. do it. No, I couldn't I'm do it. I'm with you, Joe. We'll no. stay on land. Okay, so do okay, so. I'm Without very any birds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm very curious. Do we have sharks here in uh, Southeast 
I, I hear there uh, there are salmon sharks, which are apparently like cousins to the great white. Let's talk right. about this a little bit. Yeah, they don't. We don't have a lot of sharks up here. But there are some. Um, there's some. <laughs> they are. They're, they're, creep, they're creeping that's north, north right? With global warming. Yeah, they yeah. are. The populations are coming up a little further. So who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I've heard a story of. Uh, uh, Maybe I'm making this up. Maybe I'm making this up. But has there ever been like a great white sighting in Alaska or like a large shark sighting? No, I've heard that. I feel like I've heard something like this. It was was like once, but Mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't surprise me, yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, could be. I mean, we are in the the ocean. So, I mean, they can can travel, right? Oh, man. I remember going fishing when I was a little girl here. And I don't fish very much. And we were out on a boat and pulled up... uh, I don't know what it is, but it's a shark. It looks like a shark, but it's like it's like you know what is this? Two feet, two and a half feet long. Right. Scared scared me so much because I thought it's a baby shark. You know, I was <laughs> a little kid. I was like, <laughs> baby shark, do, 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 do. and I was thinking, oh my god, there's got to be like other sh- a mama <laughs> shark somewhere, yeah. right? <laughs> I just wanted to go. I wanted. To, I was screaming. Throw it back. Yeah. Yeah. That, I was really little. Is that how? Is that how how sharks work? Do they stay with their mothers? No, not no, well, yeah. no, yeah, not the way you would think, like a bear or something. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. no, or deer or, yeah. No, I would, I mean, I think diver, like coming back to the scuba divers and their interactions with marine life, I think there's so many other things out there. As far as probably if you collected data on injuries to divers, it's there's more urchin, you know, there are urchins that they end up with their finger get mm. um, pricked from a spine or there's... Um, you know, in warmer places, tropical kind of fire corals and jellyfish. And um, and even up here, I would think more injuries due to entanglement or, um, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff than there is from the marine. Just like if you go hiking, I mean, how many people have actually been, I mean, numbers-wise, been attacked by a animal? Like a bear, like that a wolf or something. It's pretty yeah, rare. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think one of the things that um, fascinates me uh about the project that you're doing the most is, you know, yes, the cold weather gear, but then also I'm curious to see if there'll be any side data that comes up in terms of like fishing in our waters, the type diving in our waters, dive fishing in our waters. Like is any, pa- are any patterns going to um, kind of become apparent about in terms of the cycle of your diving, like the timing of your diving mm. when you should be taking breaks you know, mm-hmm. how long those dives should be, you know, mm-hmm. fit in a certain period in order to maximize manual dexterity while you're down there for safety. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and some folks have looked at um, other aspects of the physiology for years. So the Navy um, in particular collected a lot of data on their um, military Navy divers um, as far as nitrogen unloading. So the gas properties of what mm-hmm. they're breathing. Um, so you've probably heard of the bins. Mm-hmm. Um, right. so that, so that stuff's been around for a long, that data has been around for a long time. I am unreasonably yeah. terrified of the bins for someone who will, who will never go diving. <laughs> doesn't I'm unreasonably afraid of the water. So <laughs> really what frightens you about the, you know, just I think there was some kind of, of movie I saw when I was a kid that, that kind of revolved the around the, the, or the, something uh, like that. I don't know, something <laughs> that kind of revolved around the bends and people coming up and just exploding. So yeah. I'm just thinking, like, what happens if the atmosphere of the Earth just changes? Even if I'm on land, I just explode. <laughs> Deep Star Six or something yeah. like that. Yeah, Joe, I think I've wow. seen that. Whatever the movie that was, I remember. You I'm know traumatized what I mean. Oh, too. yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that would be quite, that would be a bad day, <laughs> that would for sure. I feel like I, I kind of like segue there, but like, what 
is the bends? Like, what happens to your body when that nitrogen's building up? And, and like, are do you explode? Are, are your organs exploding? Like, what? <laughs> sort of. I mean, they could, right? Well, so so the uh, the technical term for it is um, it's called decompression illness, um, or sometimes you might hear it called decompression sickness (DCS). Um, so nitrogen's an inert gas. Our body can't really do much with it the way we can oxygen. So mm-hmm. oxygen we use, we make ATP in our mitochondria, woo, um, and we get energy. <laughs> um, but nitrogen kind of just goes in, and we breathe it right now. We're sitting here in the studio. We're all breathing nitrogen. A lot of the air that we breathe is nitrogen percentage-wise. Um, but when that air is packed into a scuba tank, it's really compressed, so you're getting kind of more molecules per mouthful. Mm. Um, Plus, when you start to breathe it, when you're under pressure, your body's under pressure, deep under the ocean, um, your exhalations, you're not actually exhaling all the nitrogen the way you do when you're sitting around in the studio like we are at sea level. So it kind of just hangs out in your body. Mm. And then when you start to ascend, you're going to come up from your deep dive, you're going to come back up to the surface and look at hummingbirds or whatever. (laughs) Um, As you're moving up, those air bubbles, those nitrogen air bubbles start to expand, right? Because the pressure around them is less. So they're just like a soda pop. Um, You know, if you shook up a soda, can of Pepsi or Coke or something, and if you open it up really fast, what happens? It explodes. Yeah, it explodes. Just like your organs Just if like you have your the bends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so you want to open the soda slowly, like barely crack. So that's why you want to come up really slow and give your body a chance to breathe out all that nitrogen. You get the bends if you were to raise up really, really fast. Um, like, okay, so... and. Kind of like random, but how fast is really fast? Are we talking like a snail's pace? You have to come up. Like, what if you're like almost out of oxygen? Joe, I feel like you're writing a novel or a movie script. You, you should you, know about you. This you is know what I mean? You. I need to know all about the bends, and I, and I want to know like when did we first find out about the bends? Like, what was the, the what was the, the, the first case of this when we discovered like, oh my gosh, these people are exploding. We well, we do know it was these workers that were building, um, and I'm blanking on the date. I want to say it was like very early 1900s, um, and it's the case on um, workers. If you so they were building a bridge, so they had them down in these crazy like vaults building the bridge under the water. So oh they were God. under pressure, breathing air under, pre- and they kept coming up and getting the pins, oh. um, which can affect neurological. It just so the bubbles that explode. So Joe's saying the organs explode, <laughs> but it basically, it depends on where the bubbles burst out. Oh. Is it in your spine, your brain, your heart, oh my God. your stomach, your skin? So some of those are worse than others. And so they did know this and those workers in the early 1900s, they were noticing it. And then they were noticing, oh, if we, if we don't keep them down there as long, if we bring them up slower, if we give them a couple of days rest, these things are helping. And then the Navy came in also, the United States and other countries tested their military divers um, and kind of went through some trial and error periods with humans um, and realized, hey, we need to like, so then they've created tables. So you asked how fast is too fast. So the tables that most agencies go by, it's 30 feet a minute. Okay. There's an actual number on Hmm. it. Old school divers used to say, don't ascend faster than your bubbles are exhaling. But that's kind of like an old school by the seat of the pants measurement, not as quantitative. As I think 30 I mean, does it work? Uh, I mean, if if all your equipment was failed and you couldn't tell if how fast your rate was, so your computer and your gauges that would tell you feet per minute, 
then I would resort to that if, okay. if I had no other yeah way to tell. Well, there we go. All you need to know about the bends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and hummingbirds. <laughs> and hummingbirds. So, uh, so diver dexterity, uh, that yeah. class is? That's a Sitka. That's a Sitka. Yeah, so that's research I'm doing right. and okay. bringing back right. to the class. Um, stay tuned for future possible classes, maybe next year. Yeah, yep. I am. And what I wanted to ask is how long is this uh, program research that's grant funded going to go on? And yeah. because I'm, you know, self-centered for the library, right, since I'm with the campus library, uh, when can we expect to see an Ask UAS on that next fall? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll be in Sitka for a week collecting the data, and then I'll bring it back here to Ketchikan, and my anatomy physiology students will look at it kind of over the course of a week also, so a couple weeks of that. Um, and then I'm going to go present it at the American Academy of Underwater Sciences Symposium, Ooh. so that's um, the big kind of scientific diver powwow that happens Fancy. um that's in texas so i'll be presenting that and getting kind of their my colleagues feedback and their um, comments so maybe ask uas possibly end of this semester but Ooh. maybe next semester maybe. yeah depending yeah yeah. Fabulous. Okay, so did we leave anything out here? We have the uh, the citizens science talking all about hummingbirds. Uh, starting in March, the first class. Uh, now that class only meets four times. First class meeting March sixteenth, and then on from there. Right, Wednesday evenings. Four Wednesday evenings. Get a hold of Tessa or Brenda at two two eight four five one one. It's essentially a free class. You just have to. Uh, do some paperwork to get the free funding because it's a grant-funded program. Um, you're doing... Ooh, and I'm, I'm going to talk over you because you talked over me. Yes, please um, just do. Just real quick, um, <laughs> because I had some folks interested from, I think, the high school. Oh. So um, age-wise on that class, um, kind of a good rule of thumb is 16 and older. For 16 that. and older. Citizen science class, 16 and older. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I didn't realize. Perfect. 16 plus, learn about hummingbirds. Uh, and, and you can learn about them for free as long as you sign up for the uh, for the paperwork, for the grant funding mm -hmm. and things, says Michelle, who is the Oprah of educational funding. <laughs> uh, so those classes start uh, March 16th, but you'll want to sign up by... You just sign up as soon as possible? Yeah, sign up as soon as possible. So, so the class, right. so you can, you can sign up now? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Get on the computer and sign up right now, ladies and gentlemen. And then we have uh, the uh, diver dexterity research that you're that you're uh, that you're doing now. And then we'll learn more about that yeah. eventually. We will. Yeah. When you're done, uh, did we leave anything out? I feel like there's more to, to to talk about here. No, I well, for my part, that was it. Do you have anything else? I mean, I could talk all day about hummingbirds and scuba oh. diving, but <laughs> but no, I think that was it. Yeah. And you know what? I don't think we really got a clear answer to, to the question about uh, how many sharks are are, are, are here in, in Southeast. There's one, and it knows your name. <laughs> right? It is at my house right now waiting for me. Like, mind your business, guy. Uh, no, so, uh, but I am curious, though. So, the, the salmon shark. Mm -hmm. Is a salmon shark a big problem? I hear it's not a, like a, no. a, a thing. Yeah, no, I, I don't. Yeah, divers typically don't really worry about sharks, especially up here. Okay. Um, yeah, they're not. Probably more sea lions they're concerned with. Or, so guys, or if your name is Joe and you're afraid of sharks, you don't have to be afraid anymore. <laughs> I'm always afraid of uh, killer whales, right? Orcas. Oh yeah. Because yeah. I remember, like, when I was a teenager, we were out having a, a bonfire on the beach, and we all went swimming at sunset because it was so beautiful, and then. There went by a pod of, of orca, and I mean, you have never seen kids get out of the water so fast. I mean. <laughs> Ever since then, I've always been, Whoo. Now, are, yeah. do orcas normally attack humans? I've always heard that dolphins yeah. And, yeah. and, like, 
orcas and things were uh, sort of helpful to 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 yeah they usually humans. i don't to my knowledge there's not really been any cases or interaction with the orcas um but if you watch them feed their their actual normal food seals and things like that they it is kind of gnarly oh yeah, yeah. It can, yes, when, I've seen. i could see how it could put some fear into yes. them <laughs> they do have big old teeth and yeah they're pretty pretty good predator they're and efficient yeah playful and playful with, with it yeah and is it true that yeah. they only eat like certain things like they'll go in and like eat the kidney or something weird like that um i know i, I don't know particularly for orcas but i know um, a lot of animals that because there's more nutrient dense organs so some organs are worth more um you know bang for your buck as far as if you can only get one or two bites in you might as well go for the thing that's going to give you the most dense amount of nutrients and calories yeah very interesting so an organ meat tends to be as opposed to muscle yeah yeah much higher nutrients well, there we go. Well, thank you, Dr. Shermaine Robinson, or Dr. Shermaine, and thank you, Michelle. Uh, Thanks, we have our friends from the University of Alaska Southeast in the studio for their monthly update. And you guys stay tuned to the First City Forum. We'll be right back with What's the Tea on Facebook. That was Cold featuring Future by Maroon 5. I'm a big Maroon 5 fan. Like, Adam Levine, that voice, I mean, who... Who could really beat him? Um, so, uh, welcome back to the First City Forum brought to you by Providence Properties in Southeast Alaska Orthopedics. We only have time for a few posts on What's the Tea with Facebook. You know, I love this What's the Tea with Facebook segment. It's, it's, a, it's a segment I created where I scroll through my personal Facebook and I read the comments there, the, well, the, read the posts therein, and I uh, have a little commentary on it. And the first post is from me. It's a shared post and the post reads, a gun pointed at you to marry your second act or your second tag. So basically it's it's saying uh, if if you had a gun pointed at you, you hit the at symbol, would you marry the second person that pops up on your, your list? And the person that popped up for me was the fabulous diva Shauna Lee. And of course I would marry Shauna Lee, but I don't think the world could handle that much fabulousness in one union. I think the the uh, the the earth might physically explode uh the next post comes from my aunt she goes COVID again pray for me my husband and children love y'all oh yeah see i mean you know we i feel like we're all gonna contract this uh a time or two my aunt has had COVID, i think three or four times at this point she's not vaccinated i don't know if that's contributing to it or or not but prayers for my aunt as she and her family battle with COVID for perhaps the fourth or fifth time uh the next post comes from melanie Berger. she goes if you had chicken breasts you needed to cook how would you cook them I'm really out of ideas on this, guys. You know what I love? I love nothing more than a fried chicken breast sandwich. You go, you get a nice bun, you you toast that bun in the oven a little bit, you season up the uh, the chicken really well, and you also season the flour. Then you dredge the uh, chicken and chicken in the flour. It's fantastic. Uh, what? Uh, a mistake a lot of people make when making fried chicken or fried chicken breasts 
They only season the chicken or only season the flour. You must season both. You, oh gosh, I can't stress this enough because it stresses me out, okay? You have to season the chicken and the flour. Otherwise, your chicken will be bland and nasty. So that is my suggestion, Melanie Burger. You, uh, you season up that chicken breast and you season up some flour and you fry that chicken breast in some good oil and you have yourself a chicken breast sandwich. I, I, I literally want one right now. And the last post I'm going to read comes from Larissa Sieversten, owner of Just Dandies Apothecary. I, I love them. Um, she goes, Wednesday special. I can literally eat this parsley as it is. And she shares a post of a quite delicious looking salad. I think I see some chickpeas, maybe some hummus, some avocado, cucumber, cherry tomatoes, parsley, uh, red onion. I'm a big red onion fan. Feta, maybe some black pepper on there. She uh, and, and the post goes, uh, we have this gorgeous hydroponic parsley from Ketchikan evergreens. So of course we had to make this Mediterranean hummus bowl. It's loaded with evergreens, spring mix, uh, quinoa, homemade hummus. We soak our beans, chickpeas, cucumber, kalamata olives. Oh my God, I love a kalamata olive. Uh, avocado, cherry tomatoes, red onion, evergreen, parsley, feta cheese, hemp hearts, cracked pepper, lemon wedge, and a light lemony vinaigrette. Oh my gosh, I might just have to stop by Just Dandy's Apothecary after this show. This sounds fantastic. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, hmm... I was going to read one more post, but I'm going to leave it just there. Thank you guys for tuning in to the first City Forum. I hope you guys uh, have enjoyed the show. A shout out to my guests from the University of Alaska Southeast, Michelle and Dr. Charmaine Robinson. Uh, I am your host, Joe Williams. This show is brought to you by Providence Properties in Southeast Alaska Orthopedics. And I feel like I'm missing something. Oh, shout out to everyone who came out and joined me at the Moose Lodge last night for Tuesday Night Karaoke. Um, I think I'm going to start hosting that more often so be on the lookout for when I'm hosting karaoke at the Moose Lodge it was so much fun and of course don't miss my open mic every Sunday at the Creek Street Cabaret and I think I'm done here I think we're finished thank you guys for tuning in um it's a rainy day I'm gonna go to the rec center and work my back because I have to have a strong back anyways goodbye have a good day